Good morning, church. Man, second service, alive, vibrant with fellowship. Sorry to break that up, but you can do that anytime. Uh, Let's uh, open (laughs) to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and uh, specifically verses 43 through 52 is our text this morning. Open your Bible, please, or navigate on your device. I'd appreciate it if you would follow along. The topic, as Jesus is being led away from Gethsemane, the arresting authorities attempt to grab a young man who is following, only to be left holding his linen robe as he flees naked. The title of our message, Naked Run 1452. It's a little better than first service. So let me explain to you. There was a series of movies called Naked Gun, remember? And they came out, Naked Gun one and a half, Naked Gun three and three quarters, that kind of thing. So it's actually a brilliant title. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that we have the word of God open before us. And more than that, the Holy Spirit as our teacher. You promised that you would send another comforter and that he would not only comfort us, but be our teacher. We want to have a spiritual transaction today with you. We want to experience the word of God being powerful and alive as it discerns between our soul and our spirit and shows us in a more clear way than we've seen before, Jesus Christ. Do these things and more, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. I think what I like best about Marvel superhero movies is the cameo appearances by comic book icon Stan Lee. It's a cinematic tradition that stretches back at least to the 1980s. One cameo you might not be aware of was his very first. It happened on the small screen. Stan Lee appeared on TV in 1989 as the jury foreman uh, in the movie The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Another little-known cameo was in the 2014 animated film, Big Hero 6. It's based on a Marvel comic of the same name. Stan Lee makes his cameo in the post-credits scene as an animation. The 93-year-old has also appeared in a few small-screen and off-screen cameos over the years. He's part of the amazing Spider-Man ride at Universal's Islands of Adventure. In Netflix's Daredevil, his picture hangs on the wall of the local police station where he appears to be a cop. In Marvel's Agent Carter, he's glimpsed receiving a shoe shine next to Howard Stark. And he also appeared in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a passenger on a train. Now I got to thinking about cameos because since at least the 13th century, many competent Bible teachers and scholars have argued that Mark makes a cameo appearance in his gospel. They say that Mark is the young man following Jesus who runs away naked when the authorities try to grab him. Is it Mark in a cameo? Oh, we'd have to say maybe, but it's doubtful, which leaves us to ponder why Mark includes this odd incident. Well, I hope to show it is incredibly significant, rich with a simple symbolism used elsewhere in God's word to describe the work of Jesus in an illustration we can immediately relate to. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, with your clothes on, you are naked before Jesus. Number two, with his clothes on, you are covered 
by Jesus. Let's take a look first of all at our own clothing and our nakedness before the Lord. Justin Timberlake first used the term wardrobe malfunction referring to the Super Bowl 38 halftime show snafu. The phrase has since entered pop culture to describe all sorts of clothing problems. Long before Janet Jackson, an unnamed young man had an epic wardrobe malfunction recorded for all time in the Bible. Now, before we get to him, we're going to pick up the story where we left off last time. We're in Gethsemane. Jesus has just finished praying, and he had just announced to his disciples that his enemies were arriving to take him into custody. And so, verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. From the other accounts, we gather that the multitude may have been an entire cohort of soldiers numbering 600 or more, not counting the Jewish temple policemen that were also in attendance. If it seems like overkill, it was, but they wanted no trouble from crowds that were sympathetic to Jesus. Swords were the weapons of the Roman soldiers who were dispatched to arrest Jesus. Clubs were the weapons the temple police were allowed by Rome to carry. If there was ever trouble between the ruling Roman soldiers and the subjected Jewish temple police, they'd always be bringing clubs to a sword fight. And so that was the thinking behind that. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders... That means this was an officially sanctioned action by the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. Think of them as issuing the arrest warrant that was now being served to Jesus. Verse 44, now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. We've all seen depictions of undercover operatives. There's always some kind of signal. There's a key word or a phrase or some gesture that gives the green light for the arrest. It was customary for a disciple to greet his teacher with a kiss. Now, it could be on the cheek or on the forehead or on the hand. It would be natural for Judas, who left dinner some hours ago, to return and greet Jesus with a kiss. It's interesting to me that this tells us Jesus was not all that recognizable. He needed to be positively identified to the arresting authorities by someone who was actually familiar with him. Judas didn't say, he'll be the one with the halo. He didn't say, he'll be the one glowing in the dark. I remember when my brother, my next oldest brother, moved to college, I moved into his room. And I'd been looking forward to that for a long time until the first night. I opened my eyes in the dark and there on the wall was Jesus hanging. I didn't realize he had a crucifix that glowed in the dark. It was pretty creepy for a young kid. Finally, you know, I think I was awake until the glow wore off. Later, I would approach that crucifix and figure out that it had secret compartments. Ever have one of those from you former Catholics? The thing came apart and there were, there were like things inside. I think it was holy water and anointing oil. And I thought, man, this is ground zero for the Da Vinci Code right here. This is where this all happens. So he wasn't glowing in the dark. And Judas didn't say, you'll know him. He'll be the tall European looking guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. He's the one speaking with the British accent. Dead giveaway. He didn't say any of those things. Jesus 
a very average looking Jew. I know that because the contemporary English version of Isaiah 53 reads, he wasn't some handsome king. Nothing about the way he looked made him attractive to us. Doesn't mean Jesus was ugly or unattractive. It means he was plain and ordinary. Now, I've explained to you before, based on skeletal evidence, that the average height for Roman soldiers in the first century was five foot five inches. You have to quit thinking of Russell Crowe in that movie. Roman soldiers, they were fierce. You didn't want to mess with these guys, but they were short. Well, there I did it. I said five foot five is short. I apologize to all you short people. Anyway, Jesus... Hang on, you're going you're gonna to have a hero here in a minute. Jesus may have been shorter than that. One researcher, a Christian by the way, writes, From an analysis of skeletal remains, archaeologists have firmly established the average build of a Jewish male at the time of Jesus was 5 foot 1 inches, 110 pounds. I don't know what that does to your vision of what Jesus looked like, but he was an average looking Jew for his period of time. You've heard of the Shroud of Turin? It is purported to be the actual burial robe of Jesus Christ with his image inexplicably burned on the cloth. Scientists, both Christian and non-Christian, remain divided about its authenticity. I will admit it's fascinating and there are many unanswered questions. Something to ponder, however, is that the man depicted in the shroud would be close to six feet tall. It's possible Jesus was six feet tall, but then he'd have stood out from almost everyone else, making it hard to see how Isaiah's description would fit. And Judas could have said, you don't need me, he's the guy that's a foot taller than everybody else. He's the giant in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be the jolly Jesus giant, I guess. You know? So I'm not saying anything other than... Uh, and notice I use the two words skeletal and archaeology for those of you who are offended that Jesus was a short guy. Uh, he's just an average looking Jew, which makes all that he was and all that he did all the more remarkable as he depended upon God the Holy Spirit. Now it says, seize him and lead him away safely. They needed Jesus alive to stand uh, trial in a series of rigged trials in order to pull off their illegal and immoral scheme to murder him. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Rabbi means teacher. For three and a half years, Judas had followed Jesus and sat under his teaching. He'd even performed signs and wonders in Jesus' name, but he never believed, he never was saved. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Jesus was placed under arrest. So far, Judas's plan had gone off without a hiccup. That was all about to change. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now among the disciples, there were a couple of swords. Two of them at least had CCW permits that were current. (laughs) They were Second Amendment guys. It was not uncommon for travelers to arm themselves for self-defense against robbers. As far as the record in the Bible, this is the only time a disciple exercised his right to bear arms and defend himself. It didn't really go too well. It was Peter who wielded the sword in Gethsemane. Mark doesn't tell us that, but John rats him out in his gospel. John and Peter must have had some kind of a competition. 
In addition to telling us that it was Peter who cut off the ear, John lets us know that he outran Peter to the empty tomb on the first Easter morning. They were both running to the tomb, and John says, and I outran that old man. Uh, Well, he didn't say that, but that's what he meant. It must have been a friendly competition, however, because they were often ministering together. The arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane might not be the best context to mention this, but guys, it's okay to have fun as a Christian, especially when you're ministering together in the Lord. Sometimes you just need to loosen up a little bit. Are there, there are lines that you, you can cross, and, and you know I can tell you where those are if you'd like to know, but um, we like to have fun around here and goof off, and um, we can also, we actually can be serious. I know you don't believe that. People call me all the time and they say, you know, at this wedding, people are going to be dressed up. I go, yeah. And then, you know, you're officiating at this wedding. I go, yeah. Well, could you maybe wear something nice? You don't, most of you don't remember this, but for years, all I wore was white tennis shoes. Remember the white tennis shoe years? Because I have bad flat feet and my legs just, they start hurting after a while. Poor Pastor G. And so, I remember this one lady, she just flat out said, she goes, you cannot wear white tennis shoes at my son's wedding. I go, well, I wasn't planning on it, but now I'm going to try and figure out how to get those in. But anyway. (laughs) So, we like to have fun. um, And uh, people who don't like to have fun, they usually find a less fun church. But anyway, uh, back to our text. With perhaps 600 Roman soldiers, numerous temple policemen to strike, Peter goes after an unarmed man. He was servant of the high priest. He was there to observe, clearly not a combatant. So you've got 600 armed Roman soldiers with their swords drawn or at least their hand on the hilt. You've got a bunch of temple policemen with their clubs. And Peter says, I'm after that guy. And whether he meant to cut off his ear and was a tremendous swordsman or he's just flailing away, we don't know. It might have ended very badly for Peter and the other 10 disciples. I don't recommend 10 of you taking on 600 armed men. That, that seems like the odds are against you, unless you're Jack Bauer uh, but, or Chuck Norris. And then the odds are in your favor. But, uh, so it, this is a bad situation, except that Mark omits it, but we know from the other accounts that Jesus reached out and healed the ear of the servant quelling any violence. I want to stop there for a minute and point out something about the Bible. I've already mentioned two or three things that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane which Mark does not report. And when we get to the naked young man, we'll see that that story is something reported only by Mark. Why are the various gospel accounts different and selective? It bothers people. Why don't they all tell the same story the same way? I ran across a fascinating illustration in a scholarly journal article I was reading. It's a little long, but I think it's worth our effort as listeners. So follow along as I quote this article. While the events behind a text may be revelatory, they are not inspired and thus not expressly, quote, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That, of course, 
is not to say that the events so described in the biblical text did not happen, but simply that it is the Holy Spirit's accounts of the events that are to be attended to for life transformation, not the recreation of those behind-the-scenes events themselves. All this to say that the text is not merely a plain glass window that the reader can look through to discern the events behind it. Rather, the narrative is a stained glass window that the reader must look at. A stained glass window is carefully designed by the craftsman in accordance with a particular theme, style, location in the building, size and structure of the window, nature and availability of glass, the demands of the patron, the expertise of the artist, etc. The glass, the stains, the lead, the copper, everything that goes into its production are meticulously planned for the appropriate effect to tell a particular story. So too with the narratives in the Bible. The interpreter must pay close attention to the text, not just to what is being said, but also how it is being said and why it is being said in order that the agenda of the author may be discerned. And so there's a place for the harmony of the Gospels where you read the text in chronological sequence and know all of the events that took place in Gethsemane. But what these authors are saying is that when it comes to reading a Gospel, those accounts were edited by the Holy Spirit to lead you in a particular direction to give you a particular message. And that's what we pay attention to. And so today we don't have plain glass windows so that you look out and see cars going back and forth on Dowdy. That would be of no use. But if you want, you can look at the stained glass and admire its beauty and start to think about what the different stories are that it's telling. That's what the Bible is like. It's telling something uh, appropriate and spiritual. Mark has a message he wants to convey that is different than the message that the other gospel writers want to convey. So verse 48, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? Jesus was not resisting arrest. He let them seize him. If he wasn't resisting, then why this comment about robbers and swords and clubs? Well, there are probably lots of reasons we could suggest. I'll highlight one. Jesus was not a revolutionary leading a political party. He was not attempting to force the kingdom of God upon non-believers. He wasn't pushing political reform. He was offering personal regeneration. This adds another wrinkle to Peter's misguided swordplay. Peter's actions were the exact opposite of what Jesus was about in his first coming. He didn't need his disciples to draw swords and go to battle because his battle was not against flesh and blood. It was not against the kingdoms of this world. It was against the prince of this world, the ruler of darkness, against the devil. And he had a unique strategy for defeating the devil. It was to die on the cross and rise from the dead. There will be a second coming, and it will be totally different. Jesus himself is described as wielding a unique sword in his second coming. Maybe it'd be better if I just read it to you. I love this passage from Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven open, 
And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. The cross must precede his second coming, crowned with many crowns. So Jesus submitted himself for arrest. Verse 49, I was daily with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. All the week prior, Jesus had been available for arrest. He was highlighting the sinister nature of their actions, using the cover of night to keep their illegal acts out of the public eye. They had no cause to arrest Jesus. When he gets to these trials, they have to pay people to lie uh, in order to have a case against him. And so in order to arrest him, they had to do it stealthily when people wouldn't see it. What scriptures must be fulfilled? Well, interesting question. I would say all of the ones about the suffering and death and the resurrection of the Messiah. Most of you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard some breakdown of this before, but that doesn't make it any less fantastic. A guy by the name of Peter Stoner calculated the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. The probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. That's one uh, with 17 zeros after it, or what we would say, one in 100 quadrillion. And so for one man, like Jesus, to fulfill eight messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, the odds are one in 100 quadrillion. Jesus fulfilled minimum 108 prophecies in his first coming. I'm not sure that's a probability that can even be calculated. Uh, There's probably not a number that big. One particular prophecy that was being fulfilled right then, Zechariah 13, 7, Jesus had quoted it earlier that evening, where Jesus said, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Look at verse 50. Then they all forsook him and fled. Check that one off the list of 108. They scattered just as prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Now Jesus had also told them they'd be stumbled. Expecting the Lord to set up the kingdom of God when he surrendered himself to the authorities and did not allow any resistance, their messianic hopes were dashed. Make no mistake about it. One thing you need to know about these guys, they wanted and expected the kingdom of God to be established by Jesus Christ any minute. Jesus would tell them, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem and be killed and crucified. And they'd say, okay, and then when is the kingdom going to be established? They would argue among each other, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Even after Jesus rose from the dead, they said, now, Lord, is the kingdom going to be established right now? 
These guys were all about the kingdom. When Jesus submitted himself for arrest, when he put Peter back and said, I'm going to heal your mess, we're not here to fight, they understood that the kingdom was not going to be established by Jesus. Jesus, who had controlled nature for three and a half years, who expelled demons left and right by the thousands, who conquered every known disease and sickness, who raised people from the dead, says, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die. No kingdom now. And it stumbled these Jews who all of their life, and especially the last three and a half years, had expected that. It leads me to, the, to ask you this. Have your hopes been dashed on some rocky shore of trouble? I know they have. I've been stumbled over the years by what I thought Jesus would do or should do in my situation when it seemed that he had let me down. His perceived inaction or his actual actions, they stumble us sometimes. I know something's happened in your life or will happen and you'll have to confront it and say, I know the Lord could have prevented this. I know the Lord could do something about this right now. I've been praying fervently about it and nothing is happening. Well, that's from our point of view. While I'm being faithless and accusing the Lord of terrible things, he remains faithful to me. And when I get over that and realize that all things work together for the good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose, then I can repent and I'll find that the Lord will restore me from my stumbling. If you're in some kind of a situation like that today or the next time you are, maybe it needs to run its course, but make sure that after it's run its course, you run back to Jesus because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You may not understand this side of eternity what happens. In fact, a lot of times you won't. You need to quit trying to understand events and just know the Savior. Now in verses 51 and 52, I haven't talked about clothes yet, but I'm going to now that we have arrived at these verses. So let's read them together. Verse 51, now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Uh, The place to start talking about this is the only thing everyone always agrees upon. We are nowhere told who this young man is. Any suggestion of who it is is unsupported speculation, which doesn't stop anyone from guessing who it is and preaching entire sermons on it. But just know, the one thing we all agree on, the Bible nowhere tells us who this is, and anything that you even think is a clue is a stretch. Now, there are quite a number of theories, including that he is the Apostle John, or Jesus' friend Lazarus, or the man who would later prep Jesus' body for burial, Joseph of Arimathea. By far the most widely held guess is that it was none other than Mark himself making a cameo appearance in the gospel. It's speculated that Jesus and the disciples celebrated Passover in the upper room that Mark's family owned. In that scenario, Jesus, uh, Judas excuse me, first led the arrest party to the house. Not finding Jesus still there, they headed off to Gethsemane. Mark, aroused from his sleep, threw on a robe and ran to warn Jesus. Alas, he was too late. Jesus had already been taken into custody. Mark then decided to follow Jesus. When the authorities saw him, they tried to grab him, but they only get a handful of his robe and he flees naked into the night. Maybe. 
Probably not. It's all conjecture. If we quit looking through the glass asking who and instead ask why, we might see the stained glass that Mark is painting for us. Now, we don't need to be Greek scholars to read what Greek scholars have discovered about these verses in the larger context of the entire Gospel of Mark. We don't even need to rely on Greek scholars because we can find what they've discovered for ourselves if we have a Bible concordance. It has to do with the repetition of certain unique words. When you're reading the Bible, when an author uses certain words scarcely, there's sometimes a connection that he wants you to draw between those words. The Greek word for linen... It occurs twice in Mark 14, 51, and 52. There is only one other place in the Gospel of Mark where that word is found, and it occurs twice there too. It is when Mark describes the burial shroud of Jesus. I'll read it to you from Mark 15, 46. Then Joseph of Arimathea bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. So if you're reading Mark carefully, especially in the original language, you're going to make a connection between the double use of linen with regards to the young man's discarded robe and with regards to Jesus' burial robe. Now, while the linen robe left behind by the fleeing young man was certainly not the same linen robe that shrouded Jesus in the tomb, Mark intends for us to make a spiritual connection between the two. Mark intends for us to see that Jesus, in his death, took upon himself our robe. Now, if you think that's a stretch, it's not. There are other passages in the Bible that illustrate what Jesus Christ did on the cross in terms of clothing. He takes upon himself our filthy rags of sin and self-righteousness in order to die in our place for our sins. It's an illustration. What would it look like if Jesus were dying on the cross for me? It would be like him having the filthiest, dirtiest garments on possible because that's what I look like in heaven. How do I know that? Zechariah chapter 3 It's one of the places where we see this illustration very clearly. Zechariah 3, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. This is not the Joshua who led the children of Israel into the promised land. This is another man who was the Jewish high priest. He's on the earth in the temple. And those of you who are familiar with the garb of the high priest, the most beautiful garments that could be manufactured on earth and the most costly. All the linen and white and all of this breastplate of of 12 precious stones and bronze and brass and all of that. I mean, this guy was decked out. No one could be outdressed. No one could outdress him. And so he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. So here's how he looks from heaven's standpoint. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. On the earth... He's beautiful, shining, glorious. From heaven, that's the best you can do, and it's filthy. He answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So Jesus connects sin and and iniquity with clothing so that we can get this illustration. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him 
and the angel of the Lord stood by. And so this exchange of clothing helps us to understand a little bit about salvation. Mark calls our attention to Jesus wearing our robe, our filthy garments, by his use of the word linen. He further calls attention to the exchange of our filthy garments for a robe of righteousness by his use of two additional words. The single Greek word for young man occurs twice in Mark 14, 51 and 52. The only other time it appears in Mark's gospel is at the empty tomb of Jesus. Listen to this, Mark 16, 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Now we know from the other gospels, this young man was none other than an angel. Mark goes way out of his way to try to connect these two young men spiritually in our minds. He's an angel, but Mark calls him a young man. Why? Because he wants us to recall the previous young man. What's Mark trying to show us? What's the connection? The young man at the tomb is described as wearing a white robe. Another important word, this adjective white, is found in only one other passage in Mark's gospel. It describes Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me read that to you from Mark 9. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The disciples saw Jesus glorified the way he'd look after he rose from the dead. And so Mark is carefully showing us this series of words. Linen, young man, white. And we can apply Mark's literary clues this way. This is the stained glass that we're looking at. Before Jesus died on the cross, a young man was naked. After Jesus rose from the dead, a young man is clothed in a glorious white robe. Jesus went to the cross and took our robe, our filthy rags upon himself, but were not left naked. He rose from the dead, emerging from the tomb, glorified, and when you believe in him, Jesus clothes you with his robe of righteousness, and you are qualified and justified for heaven. Now, this interpretation is consistent with what we read elsewhere in God's word about our nakedness and the Lord clothing us, not just in Zechariah, but in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lord says this to the Laodiceans. He says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. A moment ago, I quoted the verses that describe Jesus in his second coming. If you were listening carefully, you heard the church described as clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Have you ever gone somewhere and been inappropriately dressed and just kind of stood out? First service, I joked with first service, most of you would be inappropriately dressed for most church services. You've probably realized that we're pretty casual here. I don't think we cross the line. Well, occasionally we have to talk to somebody. But anyway, uh, we're very casual. Come as you are. And, and I think that's the way the Lord would have it. We just learned earlier that the Lord was plain. There's nothing about him. Jesus wouldn't come to church all decked out. He'd just wear whatever people wore in that society. 
And, and so, uh, but there have maybe times in your life when you've felt inappropriately dressed. Or better yet, have you ever been turned away from an establishment because you failed to meet their dress code? You know, I'm old enough to remember when Disneyland had a real dress code. You, most of you don't remember this or realize this, but you, there was a time when you couldn't wear Levi's to Disneyland. You couldn't wear denim because it was the mark of rebellion. You couldn't wear Levi's. You couldn't live in Central California, right? I mean, <laughs> denim is like, uh, well, Wranglers or work jeans. And you put your Levi's on, you're going to a funeral, man. I'm telling you. That, I mean, you're, you're dressed up, especially if you have a crease and, in, in, you know. You ever have your Levi's dry cleaned? I was a pastor. I won't say who it is. He used to have uh, his uh, Levi's dry cleaned and, until I made so much fun of him that he quit doing that. So anyway... So you maybe have been turned down. You, you, they won't let you in. There's still a handful of restaurants in the United States, mostly in New York or Chicago, that require men wear a sport coat. If you show up, even with a reservation, you don't have a sport coat, you cannot eat at that establishment. Now, to accommodate you, some of those restaurants have coats that they can provide you. And they'll say, sir, if you don't have a coat, if you didn't leave your coat in your car and you're dumb enough to come here with no coat on, we've got some zoot suit coat that you can wear and you can, you'll meet our dress code, but everybody will know what a buffoon you are, but, but you can at least get in. The entire human race is invited to heaven. Jesus is the savior of all men, the Bible says. He says that if he's lifted up on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. Not all men are saved. He's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. He draws men to himself, but you need to believe in Jesus Christ. To get in, you need the appropriate spiritual clothing. Your best efforts, what we would call your good works only amount to a robe of filthy rags. On your own, you are dressed inappropriately for heaven. And entrance to heaven will be refused you. God must provide you a robe of righteousness. It is given to you as a gift by grace when you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's the only way you can be properly clothed for heaven. Not by works of righteousness in which we would boast but by his death on the cross and by his gift of grace. With your clothes on, you're naked before Jesus. You need to be clothed with his righteousness. With his clothes on, you're covered by Jesus. He gives you his glorious robe of righteousness. Who was the young man who ran away naked? If anybody ever asked you that, say, it was me. It was you. It's everyone, spiritually speaking, who is born dead in trespasses and sins, inappropriately dressed for heaven, but who can be given Christ's robe of righteousness. If you've received the Lord as your Savior, then you're like Joshua, the high priest, having been outfitted for heaven. If you have not received the Lord, don't run away naked again in the shame of your sin. Come to know him today in these closing moments. Let's pray together.